welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you? How's your week been? Life is stressful. And I hope you can relax and let me take you away and distract you for a while. Even if it is to scare you. This week, we're sponsored by Vistaprint. Also, just last week, I released a special bonus episode for my Patreon patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash scare you to sleep to listen. You've heard of guided meditations. Well, this is a guided nightmare. Become the protagonist of your own scary story narrated by me. Now, we've got three stories of people who stick their noses where they don't belong and suffer the consequences. Up first is a fantastic story by Jeremy Schaefer. He has a story about a grandma who is not one you'd want to go over a river and through the woods for. If you find this, I can't say what it means. It might mean I'm dead. It might mean I'm going to be locked away in some psych ward or a prison. Right now, I'm not sure which would be best. Either way, I have to ask you to do something. It'll sound crazy, so I'm going to tell you the background first. I doubt it'll sound any less crazy, but it might convince you to do as I ask. I moved here nearly a year ago. It was an odd thing. I was born in another city in another state, but this neighborhood was like coming home in a lot of ways. See, my mother was born here. In fact, she grew up in the house right across the street from where I live now. If I look out my front window, I can see the messy, ruined roof and the shattered bay window topping the turret of the old house, peeking over the overgrown trees and tall bushes. Anyway, I came here thanks to a grant and a job at the planetarium. I have loved astronomy all my life, so this was a dream come true, and in a place that held so much history for my family. My mother was happy for me, sure, but when I told her where I would be living, her enthusiasm weakened. A lot. I really should have considered that, but I was too wrapped up in my own excitement. I could see where my mother was coming from, though. 
She never got along with her mother, so this area holds a lot of bad memories for her. Well, I say never. My mother was the only one of the three who ever had kids of her own. Neither my Aunt Kate or my Aunt Rachel married, though for different reasons. Rachel was too much of a free spirit, and Kate was almost unapproachable. My mother didn't like to talk about what it was like for her as a child. She would if I ever pried, but it was always short and gruff. However, my aunts were in my life a lot as I grew up, so I heard what their childhoods were like. Well, from Rachel anyway, I never got a chance to talk to Kate about it. Anyway, that's how I know I was taught a few things they learned from Grandma. Stuff like cooking, gardening, sewing. Knowing how to sew is my favorite skill I picked up along the way. I'm pretty good at it, too. It was the only reason I had a decent wardrobe during college and post-grad and little income. I even made more than a few bucks on the side sewing on a lost button here or fixing a torn sleeve there for some of the other students. As good as I am, Aunt Rachel told me that Grandma was far better. I would have liked to learn from her, but that was never in the cards. My grandparents got married shortly after my grandpa returned from World War II. He got a great job, made a great living, and was able to build my grandma the home of her dreams. She grew up on a farm with very little money, so really all she wanted was a large family. She'd also grown up in a small farmhouse where she had to share a small room with her seven sisters, so she also wanted a home big enough where her children wouldn't have to do the same. Sadly, they didn't have their first child, my Aunt Kate, until quite some time after they were married. However, my Aunt Rachel followed a year later, and then my mother came along a couple years after that. They didn't have any more children, but my grandma was happy with three girls to raise. This meant she could fashion them into proper ladies by teaching them all the things she believed a proper lady should know. Cooking, sewing, and cleaning. Grandma was traditional, I guess is the nice way to say it. Unfortunately for her, my mother and her sisters were born into an age where women had more choices in life than to get married, pump out kids, and hope her husband was a decent man. Gender roles were being torn down, and that simply didn't mesh well with what Grandma hoped to instill in daughters who embraced these changes once they were old enough to understand them. My grandpa was of no help in this fight to either his wife or his daughters. He was pretty old school himself, and he really didn't know what to do as the only man in the house full of four women. He was something of a buffer, never letting the arguments get out of hand, but he had no idea how to keep them together as a family. Once the girls grew up, one by one, they left the house as soon as possible, loving their dad, but hating their mom. I know we visited them from time to time when I was little, 
while Grandpa was still alive. The only real memory I have of these visits was when I was no older than five. I remember my grandma giving me a doll she made for me. We looked alike, she told me, and the doll looked like both of us. My mother refused to let me keep the doll at first. I can't think of a time where she was as livid. Not even the time I wrecked my car. I can't remember what was said, but I dimly recall her harsh tones as my grandpa and my father talked her into letting me keep the doll. I think that was the last time we visited my grandparents. Grandpa died not too long after that, and he was the only reason my mother would ever go to see them. Aunt Kate never went, not even for their father. She was the oldest, and I'm told got the brunt of Grandma's insistent upbringing and her stubborn anger when it was rejected. I think that was why she tended to be distant and standoffish. She was nice, could even drop a joke or two at times, but I would never call Aunt Kate warm. Aunt Rachel went a few times after Grandpa passed away. She had it easiest, but she was always easygoing. Plus, forgiveness was just in her nature. It didn't matter since she stopped going to see my grandma after a while, too. She just couldn't take the needling about how she wasn't acting like a respectable woman. To my knowledge, my grandma had no friends. With my grandpa dead and her daughters not wanting anything to do with her, that left my grandma in that big house all alone. Most of the things she liked to do were of little use with no one else around. She liked working in her garden, and she had plenty of space for that. That's how I would have liked to imagine how she whiled away her days, but it wasn't. The neighborhood started to decline around her. People moved out. There were lots of reasons given for this, but... The only one that mattered is that children in the area started disappearing. Someone was snatching them off the streets. While there were a few boys, it was mostly girls between 6 and 12. The police knew there was a connection, but they were looking for a pervert, some sick guy looking to molest young girls. They weren't looking for a lonely old woman wanting a chance to raise a daughter right. I'm not sure how they figured out it was Grandma. I was about 14 and remember getting home from school that day to find my parents freaking out, especially my mother. She was rushing around trying to get packed while my father explained to me that Grandma was very sick. That's what he said. That and Aunt Rachel was going to stay and look after me for a few days. I hate to admit it, but I didn't really care much. I barely even remembered my grandma, and I was going to get to hang out with my cool aunt. I was more concerned with all the fun I was sure to have with Aunt Rachel. It wasn't as cool as I thought it would be. She was unusually tense and eventually gave me the details as she knew them when I asked. At the time, it wasn't much. As little as that was, however, it was enough to turn my stomach and make me feel glad my mother 
never brought me back to that house. One other thing I remember from that time, the day after my parents came home, the doll my grandma gave me was gone. It wasn't something I cared much about, but I thought it was neat and I kept it around. Later, I found it in the trash. It had been ripped apart. I probably could have fixed it, but I knew it was my mother's doing. She never wanted me to have it in the first place, and after what I heard my grandma had done, I didn't really want it anymore either. The remains of at least eight girls were discovered in my grandma's garden, and five more in the fruit cellar. There were more than that had gone missing. More she was suspected to have taken and murdered. The way she buried them made it difficult to separate the bones, leaving many unaccounted. Some they only found pieces which were impossible to connect to any of the missing, so the authorities couldn't be sure they found all the girls. Besides, as much as the police would have liked to pin all the missing kids on my grandma, there were a lot they simply had no evidence linking her to their disappearances. They decided she was obviously insane, so they locked grandma up somewhere. I never knew where. Since my mother preferred pretending she never had a mother to begin with, and Aunt Rachel was too flighty, it was on Aunt Kate to handle the details about the house and everything. She was the better choice anyway. Once the police gave her the okay, she went to the house to pack everything up to sell off or just get rid of it all. Sadly, in a roundabout way, Aunt Kate ended up being Grandma's last victim. She had gone up to the attic to pack stuff up. Not long after, one of the movers heard something break glass, they said, and found Aunt Kate outside in the yard. Somehow, she fell through the bay window near the top of the house and broke her neck on the impact. They said she died instantly. What happened with that house after that, I was never told, and I never asked. I was sort of like my mother. I just didn't want to think about it anymore. And I didn't, until a year ago, when I moved here. I knew this was the same neighborhood. It was in the process of being redeveloped, rent was cheap, and the upper apartment of the duplex house would be great for stargazing, but I never suspected it was right across the street where my grandma killed countless young girls. I guess I just assumed someone in the city, perhaps, would have torn the place down. But the very day I moved in, I noticed the turret and the very bay window my aunt fell from all those years ago. From the street level, the only indication someone might have the lot was something more than 
An overgrown mess would be the crumbling brick retaining wall, and the small gap between the bushes where steps and a cracked sidewalk could be seen. If you looked through the gap, you could see the stairs going up to the porch. I did my best to ignore it. Until last week. This area has plenty of streetlights, but this house is in a wide gap between them. Also, we're far enough from the city proper that the light pollution at night isn't too bad. If I turn my lights off, I can use my telescope to look at the night sky some. Not as well as if I went further out into the wilderness, which isn't difficult to do, but good enough if I can't get away. It was easy to see the roof of the house in the bay window when I set up my telescope. And that night, I guess, my curiosity got the better of me. I wanted to go see the house. I wanted to explore the grounds and go inside. I could have waited for daytime, but I was never that patient. Besides, I knew if I waited, I would never go. And it was an itch I needed to scratch. I put on thick jeans and hiking boots, grabbed my gardening gloves, another skill I loved and learned thanks to grandma, and a flashlight. It was a quiet neighborhood and was late enough most people were asleep, so I didn't bother sneaking. I didn't even bother to look around before ducking under the dense bushes and hopping up to the sidewalk. Once I crept past the tall, thick hedges, a sense of isolation came over me. It was like I stepped into a pocket dimension or something. The sounds from the city were never that loud, but now they were muffled and distant. I expected the air to smell different, though the scent of wild honeysuckle was nearly overwhelming. But I wasn't prepared for it to feel different. I nearly turned right around and went home, but curiosity made me stay. The grass was tall, about mid-shin, and had punched through the concrete of the sidewalk in places. Looking further, in the pitch black of the night, with its sagging terrace, rotted siding, and empty windows, the house looked organic. The fossilized remnant of a prehistoric colossus. I vaguely remembered it being big and bright, but those were fractured childhood memories. I turned on the flashlight and was unsettled to see the cracked and peeling old yellow and blue of the exterior on the moldering edifice. I was also upset by the fact it seemed larger now that it did in my recollection. When you're a kid, everything seems bigger than it does after you've grown up. That's what I was always told, but it didn't seem to be true in this case. I lost my nerve a little about going inside, so I decided to go around to the back of the house. The grass was dense, and every step felt like I was being pulled down into the earth. It was a bit easier once I made it to the old driveway. I remembered there was an alleyway that ran along the back of the house. I also remember it as narrow and twisting. I briefly wondered if it was still there. I'm sure it must be, but when I made it to the back, 
I couldn't make out where the yard might open out to it. Even with the help of my flashlight, I couldn't follow the deteriorated drive that far from the house, and the bushes created an impenetrable border, far more here than it had in the front. Close by was an old shed. At some point it had fallen in on itself. Mixed in with the moldering boards and tarnished sheets of aluminum, I could see old gardening tools. Wooden handles were cracked and no doubt frail, and the metal was rusted. Where I think my grandma's garden would have been, at least the spot I would have chosen for one, was a large gaping hole in the ground. I couldn't guess at its size or depth in the dark, and when I realized what it must have been, I didn't want to shine my light over it to try. In the stale, earthy smell of the garden, I took a deep breath and figured it was now or never to check out the house. Before I could talk myself out of it, I marched inside. The door must have fallen from its hinges, so it was almost like the house wanted me to go inside. It must have been the kitchen where I entered. The floor was covered in linoleum, but it was torn and shredded in places. There were old cabinets and a counter along one wall. There was also a sink, but I could see where the pipes had been ripped out. An old refrigerator stood alone in the center of the room like some ancient monolith. Its back was to me. I'm not ashamed to admit it was almost enough to make me leave right then and there. Instead, I walked slowly around it and found the door had been removed. Where it was, I have no idea. Along the bottom of the inside was a mass of old, melted candles. Some looked used, but not that much. I imagined local kids probably dared each other to hang out in here for some length of time, a good bit over the years. And they might have used candles. If for no other reason than to keep the roaches and spiders away, of which there were more than a few scurrying about at the edges of my light. Rats, too, judging by the pitter-pattering I heard. Making my way further into the house, I could see large patches in the wall. I suppose there might have been copper wiring, and that would have been tempting to some. However, thanks to the holes, I could see in the roof and floor above me, I guessed most of the damage was from water damage rather than trespassers and scavengers. As I carefully made my way through the house, stepping around more chasms in the floor, I wondered what became of the furniture. There was a lonely chair in one room, and a large table in another, but that was all. I assumed the movers still took everything away somewhere, but why they would leave these things I couldn't guess. Honestly, I didn't really care about the furniture. I was just looking for anything to keep my mind off the deep pit that was the cellar. 
I tried seeing down into it at the first hole I came across. But the light from my flashlight... I know this will sound crazy, but... It just didn't do anything against that darkness. And the chill that would sweep up around me when I got near one of the holes made me quickly decide to check out the upstairs. It should have made me decide to leave instead. Even more so when I heard the rats running about the second floor. They sounded big, not something I wanted to mess with but my curiosity was still in control. A few of the stairs were missing, and the handrail looked dodgy, but I was careful and picked my way safely up to the landing. As creepy as I found the fridge, this was even worse. The downstairs might have been bare, but these rooms were still furnished. One by one, I found the rooms that had once belonged to my mother and my aunt's. Other than the thick layers of dust, dilapidated beds, and the molding blankets on them, they looked just like they must have on the day they moved out. I went into the room at the far end of the hall and saw it had been my grandparents' bedroom. It was almost as frozen in time as the others. There was an old wardrobe that no doubt still held their moth-eaten, disintegrating clothes, There was a dress with a broken mirror. The drawers were missing. The jewelry boxes on top were turned over and empty. There were a few old scent bottles, caked over with grime, left. One side of the bed had fallen, and the decaying sheets and blankets spilled out onto the floor at the foot of it. With the state of the ceiling, I thought it best not to bother with the attic but I wanted to see if I could at least check out the turret in the bay window. I figured if I went this far, I sort of owed it to Aunt Kate to say goodbye at the spot she died. As I turned to leave, that's when I saw the sheets move. Something. A person it looked like in the gloom had sat up and was now staring at me. I could feel that much that they were staring at me. I nearly screamed, thinking it was some homeless person who might rob me or worse. I flashed my light on them, hoping to blind them and make my escape. I was nervous, however, and when I moved to turn the light on them, I caught on the doorframe. The flashlight went flying from my hand and rolled across the floor. They stood then, and I realized they were short. They took a step toward me. It was small, hesitant, and I got the sense they were just as frightened of me as I was of them. That calmed me some, but then they covered more of the distance in an instance. They walked oddly, in an uneven, jerking motion. When they stepped into the light, that was when I could see why. 
One of their legs was prominently longer than the other by a couple of inches. It took me a moment, but I also realized their feet were just as mismatched in size. It walked more into the light, a filthy, worn and mended dress covered a patchwork of complexions and uneven pieces. Its face became visible. Its one dark eye and one pale eye gleaming. It smiled, crooked and happy, with its deformed jaw. I could see the stitchwork on its face and body where it had been mended and tacked together. The hair on its head was several different textures and colors. And I remembered then all those girls my grandma had taken. She was lonely and wanted a daughter she could raise right. I got that then. But what I couldn't get was why it was walking toward me right now with its arms out wide. It was just a few steps from me. One hand larger than the other and not the same color. I wanted to run. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. All I could focus on was the perfect stitchwork holding this abomination together. Whatever spell I was under was finally broken when it spoke. In the most angelic voice you could imagine, it said, Mommy, I missed you so much. I waited, just like you told me. I hid, just like you told me. Its fingers touched mine, tried to take hold. They felt warm and soft. Did you miss me, Mommy? It asked as it moved to wrap its ungainly arms around my waist. That was when I screamed and ran. I'm not sure how I made it down those rickety stairs without breaking my neck just like Aunt Kate. Oh, God, did Aunt Kate see that thing? Is that what caused her to fall from the bay window? I couldn't think about it then. I had to get out of that house. Before I knew it, I was back out on the sidewalk, across the street, in my apartment, and hiding in my bed like a child. I didn't sleep at all that night. I called in sick the next day, and I just couldn't keep myself away from the window. I couldn't keep myself from staring at that old house all day. When night came, I was still there, in the dark, and watching the house intently. I couldn't take my eyes away from it. I called in sick the next day, but by the afternoon, 
I was able to return to some semblance of normalcy. I managed to convince myself. It wasn't some unnatural monstrosity. It must have just been some homeless kid. That was the only rational explanation. It had to be. It just had to be. Calling the police to report them crossed my mind. But I figured if they were some runaway, they would have moved on already. Now someone knew that they were there. I didn't sleep well the next couple nights. I'd wake up with certainty someone was in the room watching me sleep. Turning on the lamp, I could see I was alone, but that didn't make the suspicion and the paranoia go away. It was better when there was light, so I left it on. A few days later, and things seemed like they were back to normal. I was sleeping through the night, albeit with the light on, and I went back to work. Then, last night, I saw that face at the bay window. It saw me. I know it saw me because I could see its twisted smile. It waved to me, happy to see me. And that brings me to now. I'm going back over there tonight. I know that thing shouldn't exist, but it does. I also know it's my grandmother's doing. So that makes it my responsibility. I have a can of gasoline and some matches. I think I'm going to burn the place down. With myself inside, if, if that's what it takes. I'm going to burn the thing from this world. By the time you find this, I may be dead or I may be locked away. I don't know which. But if it all goes right, that thing will be gone. Please, I ask you, if you're reading this, whatever happens to me, please make sure I've done my job. Our next story is by Kevin Banigan. We like to bury our loved ones with little tokens to take with them to the afterlife. Things they cherished when they were alive. It's not only illegal, but considered immoral to take these things. For instance, the curse of King Tutankhamun. We all know what happened when all of his pretty things were disturbed. Well, Frank is about to learn that lesson too in The Road to Retirement.
Having finally dug deep enough, Frank Willis, the night watchman, sat on the edge of the ditch and tried to catch his breath. His heart wasn't meant for crap like this any longer. But after tonight, he'd never have to do anything strenuous again anyway. 46 was too damn old to be working full time. He took a drink from his water bottle. The cemetery was silent and dark as hell. It was always like this, of course, but tonight the ordinary became the extraordinary. The eeriness exceeding normality. The cemetery had existed only three years, and Frank had been here from the beginning. In some strange way, he'd miss the place. There you are, sucker, my ticket out of here, he said to himself. At the bottom of the ditch was a corpse that had begun the decaying process but still had enough of its substance remaining to identify the gender. It was next to the body that his fortune lay. It was a nice bike. Even nicer was the story behind it. The dead man next to the bike, Ralph Myrtle, according to the headstone, was billed to be the next evil Knievel, had fate not so stubbornly taken his life prematurely. Frank knew a guy who knew a guy, a guy that specialized in the black market auto industry and also dabbled in the jewelry fencing business and then had met this guy, an imposing beast of a man who could easily find work as a bodyguard or a bouncer earlier that week. I'd pay 20000 for that bike, the guy said. Frank had nearly spit out the gulp of coffee he'd just taken. Why is it worth so much to you? Shouldn't that be the least of your concerns, the guy asked. It was a good question. As long as the money was green, who cared? When can you have it to me? The end of next week? The latest? I like dates set in stone, so... Let's make it next Thursday, the 9th, midnight. Don't be late. I'll be here. They shook hands and parted ways. On his way home, Frank thought maybe he should have asked for a deposit. But the notion quickly seemed silly. If anything, those who partake in illegal activities were probably more reliable than their law-abiding counterparts. They had their rep to uphold or something like that. That had just been the tip of the iceberg. Initially, he planned to dig up the bike, drop it off, drive back home in his pickup, drop off his five-figure bonus, then hurry back to the cemetery, where he would call the police and report the theft of Ralph Myrtle's bike. He would ask the chop shop guy to slug him in the face a few times to help make the story of his being overpowered believable but his mind had apparently grown legs for his imagination ran with no regard like a dog in pursuit of a rabbit. Frank hopped in the six-foot ditch and slid one end of the rope through the front tire spokes, tying a fisherman's knot as best he could. Now came the hardest part. Would he be able to pull it out? He really, really didn't want to use the hitch on his truck to pull it out. He stretched pumps himself up, and gave it a valiant tug. 
The bike budged, budged, and began to lift slowly. By the time he thought to position himself so the tires would roll up the side of the ditch, he had pulled the motorcycle out of the hole using nothing but gritting teeth, grunting, and the thought of how screwed he was if he didn't complete his mission as his motivation. The back tire cleared the edge of the ditch and made it to safe ground. Frank collapsed and lay on his back, smiling and taking short, rapid breaths. A sudden sound very close to him made him sit up. The black cat who hung around the cemetery every night stared down with glowing green eyes. Frank had never been much of an animal lover, but he'd grown to like the cat's company over time. He reached out. You gave me a little scare, Muffy. Cat meowed. I gotta do something, but when I get back, I'll see what I can find for you to eat. He looked at his watch. 11.50. Perfect. With his backpack stuffed full of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, it was incredible what people buried their loved ones with. Frank hopped on his $20,000 bounty and rode towards the payoff point, leaving some 50 graves exposed. The saying about never forgetting to ride a bike once you've learned proved untrue. Frank hadn't ridden a motorcycle since his early 20s. He made it maybe 10 yards before he almost lost control and the cycle stalled out. Damn machine, he muttered as he picked himself up and brushed the dirt from his pants. It was 11.54 as he pulled into the highway. The street made for much easier riding. Under two miles of straight, smooth cruising and he'd be there. The approaching light went from green to yellow to red in a flash, and Frank nearly lost control again as he slammed on the brakes. At this time of night, he probably could have blown by, but the possibility of getting pulled over made him stop. 11.56, and his destination so close. He looked at the red light. Come on, turn, you bastard, he thought. The sound of a motor from behind made him check the rear view and turn his attention forward again, faster than a husband whose wife has just caught him checking out a much prettier, much younger girl. Shit. The cop pulled into the lane on his right. Frank tried to keep from doing anything remotely suspicious. The police car edged forward as if to make a right and then stopped. Before he was able to stop himself, Frank glanced over at the cop. He gave what he hoped was nothing more than a how's it going type nod, but the cop wasn't paying attention to him yet. He was staring intently at the stolen bike. Frank stared ahead again, still red. To his right, a throaty voice said, been thinking about getting me one of them. How long you had the bike? Something in the officer's tone helped him settle down. The guy knew nothing. Oh, I've had it for a while, but still feels like I just got it. The cop nodded and smirked. How much you pay for it? Well, thought Frank, I just pissed away my job. I'm risking my freedom, and ironically, I'm jeopardizing my immediate freedom for eternal freedom. He'd cleaned out his bank account earlier. A very nice chunk of change, thanks to his mother instilling slim spending habits and figured the money he'd make for the bike and all the jewelry 
would easily hold him over for a long time. If the time came when he needed a job, he'd pick up something simple, whether it be in Brazil, Bangkok, or Bermuda. Let's put it this way. It cost me my marriage. The cop chuckled. The light had turned green already, but only now did the man who had the power to put him in prison disappear around the corner. Frank breathed a sigh of relief and looked at his watch, which at that second turned from 11.57 to 11.58. He got the bike to 50 in a matter of seconds and only then realized that the cop either ignored or simply didn't notice his lack of helmet. Sometimes it's better to be lucky, he thought. Frank pulled around the back of the building. Without bothering to check his watch, he approached and knocked on the red door. It could only be opened from the inside, and only then, if he didn't make a mistake during the knock. After 30 seconds, nothing happened. Frank pressed an ear to the door, praying that he heard the sounds of footsteps on the other side. The heavy door popped open and smashed into his ear. He had no time to dwell on it, though, because the large man immediately said, You're late, and proceeded to slam the door closed again. Oh shit, he thought. As he went to wrap his knuckles again, the large metal loading door suddenly began to rise in a strain of rusted metal that was painful to hear. Besides the large man was an older, much more normal-sized gentleman. Apparently... The man practiced better manners, too, for he approached Frank and shook his hand, introducing himself as Mr. Fence and chuckling. Roll my bike in, please, the large man said, and give Mr. Fence your bag to inspect. Though Frank usually wasn't one to take crap, he made an exception. For twenty friggin' grand, he'd roll in sewage while wearing a dress and singing a lullaby, Besides, he had this nervous feeling in the pit of his stomach and didn't want to press his luck. People ended up dead in situations like this in the movies. As soon as he rolled the bike in, the large man began inspecting it. He handed his backpack to the older man, who disappeared into a square office against the right wall of the building. While the men evaluated their items, Frank glanced around. The last time he'd been here, the Corvette in the far corner had been painted red. Now it wore a sparkling silver coat. A few other cars were inside the building, each of them covered with a tarp. Looks good, the large man said. See this? He indicated a mark on the rim of the back tire. Though small, Frank could make out the letters R.M. They appeared to have been carved with a knife. That's how I know it's the real deal. True to his word, the man handed Frank an envelope nearly the size of a brick. Frank studied the envelope, as if deciding whether to make sure it was all there. As if reading Frank's mind, the man said, You can if you want, but... But I have two things to tell you. Number one, it's all there. Number two... I get very insulted that I'm not such a nice guy anymore when someone feels 
They can't take my word as truth. Frank got the point. He placed the brick-like envelope in his pocket, more frightened by the man's matter-of-fact tone than anything else. The large man wheeled his new bike off to the back wall, where several of the cars were lined up. Though the man had seemingly been born without emotions, his happiness showed beneath his statuesque demeanor. Frank put his hands in his pockets, his fingers grazing the envelope like a loved one to their counterpart, and waited on Mr. Fence. The man appeared a few moments later and gave Frank the good news. The very good news. The majority of this stuff is genuine. It's quite a good haul you brought me. That was the best part of these types of places. Though this was the only such place Frank had visited, that they asked no questions and expected no explanations. Yeah? Frank was nearly bursting with anticipation. Among your items is an old model Rolex that is in damn near pristine condition, roughly ten ounces of silver and gold, and a pearl necklace, with natural pearls no less. Frank knew the grave he had taken the necklace from well. Ida Ellis, 1932-1998, a mother to many a fluffy. The tombstone had always amused and confused him. Even after three years at the cemetery, it still caused him to laugh out loud. But what the hell did it mean? And who the hell made a decision to leave that as the woman's legacy? If you'd like immediate payment, I'm going to have to lowball you a bit. It protects my risk and acts as an insurance against human error, of which I am quite prone to on first glances. Mr. Fence put his hand up as if to say, that's the way it goes. I definitely want to hear the offer. 18000 Frank felt his jaw drop. If you want to come back in a few days, I will likely be able to offer a little... No, 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 no. I'm, I'm very happy with that number. Shit, three hours earlier he'd shown up to work making $16 an hour. Now after two hours of work, he'd made more money than he would have in over a year. Smiling, the old man said, Damn, should have offered you 16 he pulled his own brick-like envelope from inside his jacket and handed it over. Figured you would take the first offer. Everyone does. Not that I'm complaining. You guys done or what? Frank jumped. He hadn't even noticed the large man joining them. What with his mind reminiscing about Ida's grave and thinking about how this whole entire gamble had paid off so nicely... Yes, we finished our business, the old man said. Look at me, the large man said, and Frank did. You ever make one fucking peep about this place? By this time next week, I won't even be in this country, Frank said. Only after speaking did he realize he'd just cut off a man who scared him more than anyone he'd ever met. For a few seconds, the large man remained silent. Finally, he said, you're lucky you brought me my idol's motorcycle. Now beat it. Just in case Frank didn't get the message, the man threw a thumb over his shoulder. Frank nodded and thanked them.
The world seemed different after hitting the jackpot. The light breeze felt better. The air seemed a bit cleaner as it was sucked through his nostrils. Not many people get to experience this feeling. Frank didn't envy them one bit. The 20 or so minute walk back to the cemetery would go by in no time. So many things ran through his mind. His stomach was still a bit queasy from before he entered the chop shop. He'd been worried that he was set up to be robbed. Going there alone at midnight based on a promise of riches. Barbados, Paris, Ireland, a hundred other places. He had enough to visit any one of them whenever he pleased. He already planned to start with a nice little vacation in Costa Rica. He'd figure out the rest while sipping on a martini on the beach. His suitcases were packed and waiting for him in his living room. About two minutes before he reached the cemetery, he saw the last thing in the world he wanted to see. A police car. It was approaching from the opposite side of the street his face and the headlights of the vehicle facing each other. The only option was to put his head down and continue walking. The car was close enough that if Frank attempted to run or hide, he would be noticed, and then pursued. To hope that it wasn't the same officer as before, and if it was, then to hope that the officer didn't recognize him when he wasn't sitting atop a motorcycle. The car was moving slowly, obviously doing nothing more than routine patrol. Frank took a deep breath as he and the car crossed paths. They made it past each other. Frank could perfectly envision the voice behind him yelling, Hey you! He counted his steps, finally glancing back as he reached 25. The car could still be seen, but was far enough off in the distance that he felt safe. It's never easy, is it, he thought. The cemetery came into view a moment later. Bet no one's ever been so happy to see a bunch of tombstones, he said to the knight. Before hopping into his pickup truck, Frank surveyed the damage. No doubt he'd left his mark on his former place of employment. Fifty or so graves out of 160 had been unearthed, and... Only that few because Frank had needed to make his midnight deadline. This was the greatest fuck you that any underpaid and overworked employee had ever given a boss. It was almost worth risking his freedom to stick around and see the look on Mr. Murray's fat face. Goodbye, you shitty place. I hope when my time comes I'm far, far away from here. And I'll gladly be cremated. Thank you. Uh, he thought. That felt so good. As Frank twisted the pickup's key into its door, something wrapped around his ankle. He wasn't frightened at first, just confused. There was enough time to say, what the? Or he was pulled forward, his ass hitting the ground hard and Subsequently, his whole body being pulled beneath his vehicle. Something had grasped both his ankles and was pulling him underneath the truck to the opposite side. 
but there has never been another human at the cemetery during these hours. Barring one single incident where he chased a young, love-struck couple from the grounds. So the only... thing... that could be pulling him... was... Frank quickly raised his head to identify his assailant but his forehead collided with metal and he was momentarily dazed. By the time he shook the stars away a few seconds later, he was nearly out from underneath his truck. He began kicking wildly at the attacker. His foot hit something hard. A face, he assumed. He heard a grunt of aggravation and was free for less than a second before two more hands had grasped each of his ankles. With one on each leg, Frank was helpless and couldn't stop himself from being pulled out into the open. The one he kicked removed his still-fleshed hands from his face. It was the man he'd robbed of his prized motorcycle. Frank could feel his eyes bulging in their sockets, but he didn't notice the involuntary murmurs of fear that came from his lips. The two who had dragged him out released his ankles, and two more from behind grabbed him at the elbows and stood him up straight. Please, he begged. I'll, I'll get everything back, I swear. Tears began to fall from his eyes. Don't, don't do this. Please don't. He was silenced by a slap from Mr. Myrtle. The dead man's eye sockets were blackened, his face caked with dirt. The dark brown soil was quite a contrast with his pale white cheeks. I, I swear, I'll get your stuff, all of it. Please leave me alone. Frank might have struggled if his body hadn't been frozen by fright. <laughs> this couldn't be happening. It just fucking couldn't be real. Ralph Myrtle came face to face with Frank, and just how real this all was flooded throughout him. He twisted his head sideways, like an alien trying to understand what a human's words meant. Frank tried to beg, but his lips shook so badly that speaking wasn't possible. Finally, the motorcycle man, obviously the one who'd lost the most tonight, and therefore the leader by default, looked at his fellow victims of theft and pointed a finger to somewhere behind Frank, somewhere in the cemetery. The hands on his arms clamped tighter, and yet another cold pair of hands chilled the back of his neck as they grasped the collar of his jacket. They began to drag him backwards, his heels failing to dig into the dirt and stop their progress. Frank screamed as loud as he could, mixing no and help back and forth until his throat hurt. As the dead people dragged him through the cemetery... Frank saw many other pale-skinned people scattered through the cemetery. Several people were hugging, 
A couple of them stared hard at him. Bony arms crossed, as if to say he'd been a bad boy. As he was drugged past, and he saw one lady who could only be Ida, and her fleshless hands was Muffy. The cat appeared to be sleeping peacefully. The woman stroked the cat softly and made little cooing sounds. Half delirious, Frank laughed aloud at the odd couple. A few yards later, his attackers threw him to the ground. Mr. Myrtle once again pointed to something behind him. Rolling over, Frank caught sight of the most terrifying thing yet. The remaining corpses, six of them, were standing in a circle, each armed with a shovel. Being an expert in the field, Frank saw that they were about halfway there. The hole that they were digging would soon, very soon, be deep enough. Our last story of the night is from Frequent Scarer, Wellington Hutzler. I would say that this is a warning about hitchhiking from both sides of the fence. Here is the last stop. The wheels of the car bounced on the dark, dirty road. It had been hours since they had seen another person or vehicle traveling along the hills of South Dakota. Devin stared at the map as if he was trying to memorize every individual road. If we take the shortcut near Sternwood, then we'll get to Serena a few hours earlier. Rick better not fuck us on the job like he did last time. I'll kill him, Clark grumbled. Relax, I worked it out with him. He's going to compensate us for last time. Just stay. Hold on. Do you see that? Clark pointed forward. Up ahead in the darkness, they could see a figure getting closer. It was a woman. She was young, small, and carrying a backpack. Well, what do we have here? Devin asked. The car slowly came to a halt right next to her. Devin rolled down his window. Hello there. What are you doing out here by yourself at this hour? Do you need help? Devin asked sweetly. She quietly crept closer to the window and tried to confidently say, I'm just, I'm just trying to head west. Devin exchanged a glance with Clark before looking back at her. Well, feel free to hop in the back. We'll take you as far as we can. She nervously scanned them and their car. They were driving a fairly new green Ford. 
Devin was a skinny, weasel-faced man with dark hair, but kind of handsome. Clark was a large mass of flesh with a buzz cut, an ugly face that wouldn't look at her, and a pinhead. She looked up and down the isolated road she had been walking on, and then timidly climbed into the back seat. Clark steadily lowered his foot onto the acceleration. Devin looked back at the girl and smiled. So, what's your name? Why are you going west? My name is Molly. I'm just looking to get away. Maybe become an actress? Devin chuckled. (laughs) We've heard that before. Clark and I have met all kinds of people over the years, haven't we? Devin happily turned to Clark, but all Clark added was, Sure. I'm Devin, by the way. He offered his hand to Molly. She delicately shook it and asked, What do you guys do exactly? Uh, bit of this, bit of that. We travel the country and take whatever jobs come our way. So, like painting or sometimes Devin's gaze started at Molly's bare legs worked its way up her tight body and ended on her petite breast poking through her shirt she started to get visibly uncomfortable how old are you Molly I'm 17 Devin gave a pleased hmm before asking her So, you a virgin? Molly's face went from nervous reservation to a horrified shock. Devin belted out an obnoxious laugh and slapped her on the knee. (laughs) I'm just fucking with you. Why are you so nervous? I think I'd like to get out. Molly pulled at her car door, only to realize the child locks were on. She could see the charm and warmth in Devin's eyes change completely. Now, why would you want to do that? It's dangerous out there. Lots of lunatics. But you're safe with us. His happy-go-lucky attitude had been dulled down to a calm monotone. Molly frantically pulled at her car door. Please, I just want to get out. Clark turned back to her and ferociously screamed. Oh, shut the fuck up! He faced the road again, but kept his eyes on her with the rearview mirror. I swear to God, I'm going to pull this car over right now. I can't stand listening to sluts like you beg. Molly banged her fist on the car window and screamed. Help me! Help! Enough! Devin shouted as loud as he could and pointed his pistol at Molly's face. She stopped immediately. It hadn't been that quiet since before she got in the car. Let's all just take a breath, okay, Molly? I wouldn't like to ruin your pretty face. Or dump that lovely body of yours in a ditch. It would rob the world of something beautiful. So how about 
you just calm down and do as we say. We've let people go before when they were good. Molly's eyes grew red and puffy as she muttered to herself. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Clark tightly gripped the wheel as if he was trying to rip it off. If this bitch doesn't shut her fucking mouth. Devin patted Clark on the shoulder. Ease up, big guy. I think she's starting to accept it. Clark brushed off his hand. Devin lowered the gun and smiled to himself while he listened to Molly sniffling. It wasn't always this easy. Her crying was the only sound in the car for a few moments. What do you think Janine would say? Devin blinked and took time to register what she had said. What was that? He looked in the back seat and saw she was no longer crying. Her eyes were completely clear and staring deep into his. He was briefly startled by the surprise. If Janine was in this car, do you think she'd approve of what you're doing? He recollected himself and smugly called her bluff. (laughs) What are you talking about? It must have hurt. She tilted her head with a sad expression. Being dumped? You may have wondered if it was your baby dick, or that you're a loser with no aspirations. But we know. It was both. Devin's jaw was stuck open. The car was moving at 65 miles per hour, but Devin's body felt so heavy that he was shocked they didn't come to a sudden stop. How? That's enough, Clark interjected. One more word out of you, and you're feeling the back of my hand. Clark, Clark, Clark. Does he know what you've been through? Does anyone? Clark tried to reach back and angrily swing at her. The car swerved into the other lane. Devin snapped out of his shock to correct the wheel. Watch the road! Stop driving like an asshole. Fuck you both! I'll kill all of you! You seem stressed, she continued. Relax. Remember how calm you were with Uncle Max? Devin could see Clark turning red, with veins bulging out of his head. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Shoot her, he roared. Spit launched onto Devin from Clark's angry, frothing mouth. But he couldn't bring himself to do anything else aside from listen to her. It's okay to like it. You can be yourself when you're with friends. It was over 20 years ago. I'm not a queer. I don't know who you've been talking to, but this is your last stop, you smart-mouthed little cunt. She ignored his threats. You boys have been very bad. 
but I know some people who'd like to meet you. The only question Devin could ask was, Who? Who are you? She giggled to herself and stared at him with a strange, unsettling look in her eye. (laughs) You wouldn't believe me if I told you. I'm done with this. I'll kill this bitch. Clark grabbed the gun from Devin with his right hand and pointed it at Molly. She gripped his hand and crushed it like tissue paper. His bones crunched and poked through his skin while he howled in pain. With the remaining nerves in his hand, he pulled the trigger and fired a bullet through the back window. Glass flew throughout the car. From the desk of Sergeant George Hartman of the Black Oak PD. A green 1992 Ford Tempo was located sitting on the side of the highway about nine miles away from the city. The car was sat, perfectly parked, and in pristine condition. No sign of damage or disturbance located in or out of the vehicle. Upon searching the license plate, we discovered it had been reported stolen two months ago by one Philip Tuttle of Brookbridge, Massachusetts. The car will be on its way back to his owner, ASAP. Thanks for listening. I didn't mean for this episode to be extra long, but what the heck, you deserve it. I hope I could distract you from life's woes for an hour. I wanted to remind you to join the Facebook page. Moderator Maddie sets up an episode thread each week where spoilers are welcome so you can fully discuss each episode. I know we've had some ambiguous endings around here, so tell us what you think happened. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. You can follow me on both at Shelby B. Scott. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and please use my offer code SLEEP for this week's sponsor or any past sponsors so I can keep affording to make time to produce the podcast. Also, my eternal gratitude to my most recent Patreon donors, Blue Seven and Rosemary Gaswin. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Do you feel depressed and listless? Do you find social interactions exhausting or terrifying? Do you or someone you know have dark thoughts echo in your mind on a regular basis? Don't worry, we do too. I'm Chris. And I'm Lindsay. And we're the hosts of How Are You Holding Up? A podcast by the depressed for the depressed. We aren't doctors, therapists, or anything of the sort. We just have depression and anxiety. And want to talk about it. So come and join us on a mental health adventure wherever you download your podcasts. And let us know. How how are are you holding up?